Okay, uh, apparently we are having massive technical difficulties tonight. Alright, I think we can cut the music. So I can already tell this is going to be a massive crap show. Let me see here. Anyway, welcome to Dread Time Stories. Uh, looks like we're having, we're going to have a fun show tonight. Uh, anyway, we're just going to dive right into our stories by Ambrose Bierce. We've got uh, The Moonlit Road, which, if I'm not mistaken, is genuinely considered an inspiration for Akira Kurosawa's, uh, what I think is his best movie, uh, Rashomon. I'm not saying uh, uh, The Seven Samurai is bad. I love the film. It's just a slog. It's it's almost four hours. And if you're like me and you have ADHD, uh, it's not your friend. And like I said, it's not that it's a bad movie. It's just I think Rashomon is a stronger film with a better narrative. Uh, because Seven Samurai just takes, you know, like, boom, all seven directions. Rashomon is very narrow in its focus. But anyway, that's not here than there. We're not here to talk about Rashomon. We're here to, t to listen to uh, Ambrose Bierce. Now, he is another American author um, and another one of Lovecraft's uh, inspirations. Was a, He was born in uh, 1842 or thereabouts. Um, he wrote The Devil's Dictionary, which was named as one of the 100 Greatest Masterpieces of American Literature. Uh, one of his most famous stories, which we're not covering tonight, is An Occurrence at Owl Creek Br uh, Bridge. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was someone uh, Lovecraft looked up to, and he was a Civil War veteran. Uh, I believe he fought for the Union. I sure hope he 
Yeah, he fought in the Union. Smart man. Smart man. But, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, what's most interesting about him um, was the way, you know, of course he's dead by now. He, he you know, he... <laughs> Um, at the age of 71, he left Washington, D.C. to do a tour of his uh, of the battlefields he fought at during the Civil War. Um, and he, by December of that year, he had been confirmed to have passed through Louisiana and Texas, uh, heading into Mexico, which at the time was, during, you know, was the uh, Mexican Revolution. And then he met uh, Pancho Villa. And basically spent the rest of his life um, riding with Pancho Villa's army until he finally um, he he basically disappeared. No one knows um, what happened to Ambrose Bierce. No one knows how he died. I mean, we know he's dead because you know no one lives to be he he was like 72, 71, 72 when he vanished. He he was he was you know at the end of his life. Could he live longer? Of course. I mean. But um, he is most assuredly dead by now, and no one knows how he died. All we know is his the last thing we know about him was he was riding with Pancho Villa's army as an observer, and then he just vanished. So, uh, yeah, one of uh, American literature's greatest mysteries, what happened to Ambrose Beers. But anyway, you're not interested in that. You're interested in getting to our stories. So we'll do the update from my Dungeons & Dragons game after the stories. Um, we've got two. We've got an inhabitant of Carcosa and the Moonlit Road. And again, as I mentioned, the Moonlit Road is... Uh, like I said, I could be mistaken. But I believe it's cited as if not an inspiration, at least an influence on, um, uh, yes. So it, it's widely thought that the Moonlit Road was an inspiration for Rashomon, but it's never been overtly stated. Um, and, and I would love to get the, you know, get a reading of this, you know, maybe I'll do a reading of the story that Rashomon is based off of, because it is a really good story. It's called In a Grove. But anyway, uh, so basically one of the things about this story is that we have three unreliable narrators. Which is one of the reasons why it's seen as kind of an inspiration for Rashomon. Because Rashomon kind of follows the same, um, same format. And it is considered to be a template for In the Grove by Ryu, no Ryu Nosuke Akutagawa. Um... So, there you have it. Alright, we're going to get started, and then when we come back, we'll have an update from my Dungeons & Dragons game. I hope you enjoy An Inhabitant of Carcosa An Inhabitant of Carcosa by one Mr. Ambrose Beers. Okay, we can... So again, enjoy.
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by G. C. Fournier. An Inhabitant of Carcosa by Ambrose G. Bierce. For there be diverse sorts of death, some wherein the body remaineth, and in some it vanisheth quite away with the spirit. This commonly occurreth only in solitude, such is God's will, and, none seeing the end, we say the man is lost or gone on a long journey, which indeed he hath, but sometimes it hath happened in sight of many, as abundant testimony showeth. In one kind of death the spirit also dieth, and this it hath been known to do while yet the body was in vigour for many years. Sometimes, as is veritably attested, it dieth with the body, but after a season is raised up again in that place where the body did decay. Pondering these words of holly, whom God rest, and questioning their full meaning, as one who, having an intimation, yet doubts, if there be not something behind, other than that which he has discerned, I noted not whither I had strayed, until a sudden chill wind striking my face revived in me a sense of my surroundings. I observed with astonishment that everything seemed unfamiliar. On every side of me stretched a bleak and desolate expanse of plain, covered with a tall overgrowth of sear grass, which rustled and whistled in the autumn wind, with heaven knows what mysterious and disquieting suggestion. Protruded at long intervals above it stood strangely shaped and sombre-colored rocks, which seemed to have an understanding with one another, and to exchange looks of uncomfortable significance, as if they had reared their heads to watch the issue of some foreseen event. A few blasted trees here and there appeared as leaders in this malevolent conspiracy of silent expectation. The day, I thought, must be far advanced, though the sun was invisible, and although sensible that the air was raw and chill, my consciousness of that fact was rather mental than physical. I had no feeling of discomfort. Over all the dismal landscape, a canopy of low, lead-colored clouds hung like a visible curse. In all this there were a menace and a portent, a hint of evil, an intimation of doom. Bird, beast, or insect there was none. The wind sighed in the bare branches of the dead trees, and the gray grass bent to whisper its dread secret to the earth. But no other sound nor motion broke the awful repose of that dismal place. I observed in the herbage a number of weather-worn stones, evidently shaped with tools. They were broken, covered with moss, and half-sunken in the earth. Some lay prostrate, some leaned at various angles, none was vertical. They were obviously headstones of graves, though the graves themselves no longer existed as either mounds or depressions. The years had leveled all. 
Scattered here and there, more massive blocks showed where some pompous or ambitious monument had once flung its feeble defiance at oblivion. So old seemed these relics, these vestiges of vanity and memorials of affection and piety, so battered and worn and stained, so neglected, deserted, forgotten the place, that I could not help thinking myself the discoverer of the burial ground of a prehistoric race of men whose very name was long extinct. Filled with these reflections, I was for some time heedless of the sequence of my own experiences, but soon I thought, how came I hither? A moment's reflection seemed to make this all clear and explain at the same time, though in a disquieting way, the singular character with which my fancy had invested all that I saw or heard. I was ill. I remembered now that I had been prostrated by a sudden fever, and that my family had told me that in my periods of delirium I had constantly cried out for liberty and air, and had been held in bed to prevent my escape out of doors. Now I had eluded the vigilance of my attendants, and had wandered hither to... to where? I could not conjecture. Clearly I was at a considerable distance from the city where I dwelt, the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. No signs of human life were anywhere visible or audible. No rising smoke, no watchdog's bark, no lowing cattle, no shouts of children at play. Nothing but that dismal burial place with its air of mystery and dread due to my own disordered brain. Was I not becoming again delirious, there beyond human aid? Was it not indeed all an illusion of my madness? I called aloud the names of my wives and sons, reaching out my hands in search of theirs, even as I walked among the crumbling stones and in the withered grass. A noise behind me caused me to turn about. A wild animal, a lynx, was approaching. The thought came to me. If I break down here in the desert, if the fever return and I fail, this beast will be at my throat. I sprang toward it, shouting. It trotted tranquilly within a hand's breadth of me and disappeared behind a rock. A moment later a man's head appeared to rise out of the ground a short distance away. He was ascending the farther slope of a low hill whose crest was hardly to be distinguished from the general level. His whole figure soon came into view against the background of grey cloud. He was half-naked, half-clad in skins. His hair was unkempt, his beard long and ragged. In one hand he carried a bow and arrow, in the other a blazing torch with a long trail of black smoke. He walked slowly and with caution, as if he feared falling into some open grave concealed by the tall grass. This strange apparition surprised but did not alarm, and taking course to intercept him I met him almost face to face, accosting him with the familiar salutation, God keep you. He gave no heed, nor did he arrest his pace. Good stranger, I continued, I am ill and lost. 
direct me, I beseech you, to Carcosa. The man broke into a barbarous chant in an unknown tongue, passing on and away. An owl on the branch of a decayed tree hooted dismally and was answered by another in the distance. Looking upward, I saw through a sudden rift in the clouds Aldebaran and the Hyades. In all this there was the hint of night. The lynx, the man with the torch, the owl. Yet I saw. I saw even the stars in absence of darkness. I saw, but was apparently not seen nor heard. Under what awful spell did I exist? I seated myself at the root of a great tree, seriously to consider what it were best to do. That I was mad I could no longer doubt, yet recognized a ground of doubt in the conviction. Of fever I had no trace. I had withal a sense of exhilaration and vigor altogether unknown to me a feeling of mental and physical exultation. My senses seemed all alert. I could feel the air as a ponderous substance. I could hear the silence. A great root of the giant tree against whose trunk I leaned as I sat held enclosed in its grasp a slab of stone, a part of which protruded into a recess formed by another root. The stone was thus partly protected from the weather, though greatly decomposed. Its edges were worn round, its corners eaten away, its surface deeply furrowed and scaled. Glittering particles of mica were visible in the earth about it, vestiges of its decomposition. This stone had apparently marked the grave out of which the tree had sprung ages ago. The tree's exacting roots had robbed the grave and made the stone a prisoner. A sudden wind pushed some dry leaves and twigs from the uppermost face of the stone. I saw the low-relief letters of an inscription and bent to read it. God in heaven, my name in full, the date of my birth, the date of my death, a level shaft of light illuminated the whole side of the tree as I sprang to my feet in terror. The sun was rising in the rosy east. I stood between the tree and his broad red disk. No shadow darkened the trunk. A chorus of howling wolves saluted the dawn. I saw them sitting on their haunches, singly and in groups on the summits of irregular mounds and tumuli filling a half of my desert prospect and extending to the horizon. And then I knew that these were ruins of the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. End of An Inhabitant of Carcosa Beyond the Wall by Ambrose Beers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, go to LibriVox.org. Beyond the Wall by Ambrose Beers.
Many years ago, on my way from Hong Kong to New York, I passed a week in San Francisco. A long time had gone by since I had been in that city, during which my ventures in the Orient had prospered beyond my hope. I was rich and could afford to revisit my own country, to renew my friendship with such of the companions of my youth, as still lived and remembered me with the old affection. Chief of these, I hoped, was Mohan Dampierre, an old schoolmate with whom I had held a desultory correspondence which had long ceased, as is the way of correspondence between men. You may have observed that the indisposition to write a merely social letter is in the ratio of the square of the distance between you and your correspondent. It is a law. I remember Dampier as a handsome, strong young fellow of scholarly tastes, with an aversion to work and a marked indifference to many of the things that the world cares for, including wealth, of which, however, he had inherited enough to put him beyond the reach of want. In his family, one of the oldest and most aristocratic in the country, it was, I think, a matter of pride that no member of it had ever been in trade nor politics nor suffered any kind of distinction. Mohan was a trifle sentimental, and had in him a singular element of superstition, which led him to the study of all manner of occult subjects. Although his sane mental health safeguarded him against fantastic and perilous faiths, he made daring incursions into the realm of the unreal without renouncing his residence in the partly surveyed and uncharted region of what we are pleased to call certitude. The night of my visit to him was stormy. The Californian winter was on, and the incessant rain plashed in the deserted streets, or lifted by irregular gusts of wind, was hurled against the houses with incredible fury. With no small difficulty, my cabman found the right place, away out towards the ocean beach, in a sparsely populated suburb. The dwelling, a rather ugly one, apparently stood in the centre of its grounds, which, as nearly as I could make out in the gloom, were destitute of either flowers or grass. Three or four trees writhing and moaning in the torment of the tempest appeared to be trying to escape from their dismal environment and take the chance of finding a better one out at sea. The house was a two-storey brick structure with a tower, a story higher at one corner. In a window of that was the only visible light. Something in the appearance of the place made me shudder, a performance that may have been assisted by a rill of rainwater down my back as I scuttled to cover in the doorway. In answer to my note apprising him of my wish to call, Dampier had written, Don't ring. Open the door and come up. I did so, the staircase was dimly lighted by a single gas jet at the top of the second flight. I managed to reach the landing without disaster and entered by an open door into the lighted square room of the tower. Dampier came forward in gown and slippers to receive me, giving me the greeting that I had wished, and if I had held the thought that it might be more fitly have been accorded me at the front door. The first look at him dispelled any sense of his inhospitality. He was not the same. Hardly past middle-aged, he had gone grey and had acquired a pronounced stoop. His figure was thin and angular, his face deeply lined, his complexion dead, 
white, without a touch of colour. His eyes, unnaturally large, glowed with a fire that was almost uncanny. He seated me, proffered a cigar, and with grave and obvious sincerity assured me of the pleasure that it gave him to meet me. Some unimportant conversation followed, but all the while I was dominated by a melancholy sense of the great change in him. This he must have perceived, for he suddenly said with a bright enough smile, You are disappointed in me, non sum qualis eram. I hardly knew what to reply, but managed to say, Why, really, I don't know. Your Latin is about the same. He brightened again. No, he said, being a dead language it grows in appropriateness. But please have the patience to wait. Where I am going, there is perhaps a better tongue. Will you care to have a message in it? The smile faded as he spoke, and as he concluded, he was looking into my eyes with a gravity that distressed me. Yet I would not surrender myself to his mood, nor permit him to see how deeply his prescience of death affected me. I fancy that it will be long, I said, before human speech will cease to serve our need and then the need, with its possibilities of service, will have passed. He made no reply, and I too was silent, for the talk had taken a dispiriting turn, yet I knew not now how to give it a more agreeable character. Suddenly, in a pause of the storm, when the dead silence was almost startling by contrast of the previous uproar, I heard a gentle tapping which appeared to come from the wall behind my chair. The sound was such as might have been made by a human hand, not as upon a door by one asking admittance, but rather, I thought, as an agreed signal, an assurance of someone's presence in an adjoining room. Most of us, I fancy, have had more experience of such communications than we could care to relate. I glanced at Dampier. If possibly there was something of amusement in the look, he did not observe it. He appeared to have forgotten my presence, and was staring at the wall behind me with an expression in his eyes that I am unable to name, although my memory of it is as vivid today as was my sense of it then. The situation was embarrassing. I rose to take my leave. At this he seemed to recover himself. Please be seated, he said. It is nothing. No one is there. But the tapping was repeated and with the same gentle, slow insistence as before. Pardon me, I said. It is late. May I call tomorrow? He smiled. A little mechanically, I thought. It is very delicate of you, said he, but quite needless. Really, this is the only room in the tower, and no one is there. At least... He left the sentence incomplete. Rose and threw up a window, the only opening in the wall from which the sound seemed to have come. See? Not clearly knowing what else to do, I followed him to the window and looked out. A street lamp some little distance away gave enough light through the murk of the rain, that was again falling in torrents, to make it entirely plain that no one was there. In truth, there was nothing but the sheer blank wall of the tower. Dampier closed the window, and signing me to my seat, resumed his own.
The incident was not in itself particularly mysterious. Any one of a dozen explanations was possible, though none has occurred to me. Yet it impressed me strangely, the more, perhaps, from my friend's efforts to reassure me, which seemed to dignify it with a certain significance and importance. He had proved that no one was there, but in that fact lay all the interest, and he proffered no explanation. His silence was irritating, and made me resentful. My good friend, I said, somewhat ironically, I fear, I am not disposed to question your right to harbour as many spooks as you find agreeable to your taste, and consistent with your notions of companionship. That is no business of mine, but... Being just a plain man of affairs, mostly of this world, I find spooks needless to my peace and comfort. I am going to my hotel, where my fellow guests are still in the flesh. It was not a very civil speech, but he manifested no feeling about it. Kindly remain, he said. I am grateful for your presence here. What you have heard tonight, I believe myself to have heard twice before. Now I know it was no illusion. That is much to me, more than you know. Have a fresh cigar and a good stock of patience while I tell you the story. The rain was now falling more steadily, with a low monotonous susurration, interrupted at long intervals by the sudden slashing of the boughs of the trees as the wind rose and failed. The night was well advanced, but both sympathy and curiosity held me a willing listener to my friend's monologue, which I did not interrupt by a single word from beginning to end. Ten years ago, he said, I occupied a ground-floor apartment in one of the row of houses, all alike, away at the other end of the town, on what we call Rincon Hill. This had been the best quarter of San Francisco, but had fallen on to neglect and decay, partly because the primitive character of its domestic architecture no longer suited the maturing tastes of our wealthy citizens, and partly because certain public improvements had made a wreck of it. The row of dwellings, in one of which I had lived, stood a little way back from the street, each having a miniature garden, separated from its neighbours by low iron fences and bisected with mathematical precision by a box-bordered gravel walk from gate to door. One morning, as I was leaving my lodging, I observed a young girl entering the adjoining garden on the left. It was a warm day in June, and she was lightly gowned in white. From her shoulders hung a broad straw hat, profusely decorated with flowers and wonderfully beribboned in the fashion of the time. My attention was not long held by the exquisite simplicity of her costume, for no one could look at her face and think of anything earthly. Do not fear, I shall not profane it by description. It was beautiful exceedingly. All that I had ever seen or dreamed of loveliness was in that matchless living picture by the hand of the divine artist. So deeply did it move me, that without a thought of the impropriety of the act, I unconsciously bared my head as a devout Catholic or well-bred Protestant uncovers before an image of the Blessed Virgin. The maiden showed no displeasure. She merely turned her glorious dark eyes upon me with a look that made me catch my breath, and without other recognition of my act, 
passed into the house. For a moment I stood motionless, hat in hand, painfully conscious of my rudeness, yet so dominated by the emotion inspired by that vision of incomparable beauty that my penitence was less poignant than it should have been. Then I went my way, leaving my heart behind. In the natural course of things, I should probably have remained away until nightfall, but by the middle of the afternoon I was back in the little garden, affecting an interest in the few foolish flowers that I had never before observed. My hope was vain. She did not appear. To a night of unrest succeeded a day of expectation and disappointment, but on the day after, as I wandered aimlessly about the neighbourhood, I met her. Of course I did not repeat my folly of uncovering, nor venture by even so much as to long a look to manifest an interest in her, yet my heart was beating audibly. I trembled and consciously coloured as she turned her big black eyes upon me with a look of obvious recognition, entirely devoid of boldness or coquetry. I will not weary you with the particulars. Many times afterwards I met the maiden, yet never either addressed her or sought to fix her attention, nor did I take any action toward making her acquaintance. Perhaps my forbearance, requiring so supreme an effort of self-denial, will not be entirely clear to you. That I was heels overhead in love is true, but who can overcome his habit of thought or reconstruct his character? I was what some foolish persons are pleased to call, and others more foolish are pleased to be called, an aristocrat. And despite her beauty, her charms and grace, the girl was not of my class. I had learnt her name, which it is needless to speak, and something of her family. She was an orphan, a dependent niece of the impossible elderly fat woman in whose lodging house she lived. My income was small, and I lacked the talent for marrying. It is perhaps a gift. An alliance with that family would condemn me to its manner of life, part me from my books and studies, and in a social sense reduce me to the ranks. It is easy to deprecate such considerations as these, and I have not retained myself for the defence. Let judgment be entered against me, but in strict justice all my ancestors for generations should be made co-defendants, and I'd be permitted to plead in mitigation of punishment the imperious mandate of heredity. To a mesalliance of that kind, every globule of my ancestral blood spoke in opposition. In brief, my tastes, habits, instincts, with whatever of reason, my love had left me, all fought against it. Moreover, I was an irreclaimable sentimentalist and found a subtle charm in an impersonal and spiritual relation which acquaintance might vulgarize and marriage would certainly dispel. No woman... I argued, is what this lovely creature seems. Love is a delicious dream. Why should I bring about my own awakening? The course dictated by all this sense and sentiment was obvious. Honour, pride, prudence, preservation of my ideals. All commanded me to go away. But for that I was too weak. The utmost that I could do by a mighty effort of will was to cease meeting the girl, and that I did. 
I even avoided the chance encounters of the garden, leaving my lodging only when I knew that she had gone to her music lessons and returning after nightfall. Yet all the while I was as one in a trance, indulging the most fascinating fancies and ordering my entire intellectual life in accordance with my dream. Ah, my friend, as one whose actions have traceable relation to reason, you cannot know the fool's paradise in which I lived. One evening the devil put it into my head to be an unspeakable idiot. By apparently careless and purposeless questioning I learned from my gossipy landlady that the young woman's bedroom adjoined my own, a party wall between. Yielding to a sudden and coarse impulse, I gently rapped on the wall. There was no response, naturally, but I was in no mood to accept a rebuke. A madness was upon me, and I repeated the folly, the offence, but again ineffectually, and I had the decency to desist. An hour later, while absorbed in some of my infernal studies, I heard, or thought I heard, my signal answered. Flinging down my books, I sprang to the wall, and as steadily as my beating heart would permit, gave three slow taps upon it. This time, the response was distinct, unmistakable. One, two, three. An exact repetition of my signal. That was all I could elicit, but it was enough. Too much. The next evening, and for many evenings afterwards, that folly went on, I always having the last word. During the whole period I was deliriously happy, but with the perversity of my nature I persevered in my resolution not to see her. Then, as I should have expected, I got no further answers. She is disgusted, I said to myself, with what she thinks my timidity in making no more definite advances, and I resolved to seek her and make her acquaintance, and what? I did not know, nor do I now know what might have come of it. I know only that I passed days and days trying to meet her, and all in vain. She was invisible as well as inaudible. I haunted the streets where we had met, but she did not come. From my window I watched the garden in front of her house, but she passed neither in nor out. I fell into the deepest dejection, believing that she had gone away, yet took no steps to resolve my doubt by inquiry of my landlady, to whom, indeed, I had taken an unconquerable aversion from her having once spoken of the girl with less of reverence than I thought befitting. There came a fateful night, worn out with emotion, irresolution and despondency, I had retired early and fallen into such sleep as was still possible to me. In the middle of the night, something, some malign power bent upon the wrecking of my peace forever, caused me to open my eyes and sit up, wide awake and listening intently, for I knew not what. Then I thought I heard a faint tapping on the wall, the mere ghost of the familiar signal. In a few moments it was repeated, Three, no louder than before, but addressing a sense alert and strained to receive it. 
I was about to reply when the adversary of peace again intervened in my affairs with a rascally suggestion of retaliation. She had long and cruelly ignored me. Now I would ignore her. Incredible fatuity. May God forgive it. All the rest of the night I lay awake, fortifying my obstinacy with shameless justifications and listening. Late the next morning, as I was leaving the house, I met my landlady entering. Good morning, Mr. Dampier, she said. Have you heard the news? I replied in words that I had heard no news, in manner that I did not care to hear any. The manner escaped her observation. About the sick young lady next door, she babbled on. What? You did not know? Why, she has been ill for weeks. And now... I almost sprang upon her. And now, I cried, now what? She is dead. That is not the whole story. In the middle of the night, as I learnt later, the patient, awakening from a long stupor of a week of delirium, had asked, it was a last utterance, that her bed be moved to the opposite side of the room. Those in attendance had thought the request a vagary of her delirium, but had complied. And there the poor passing soul had exerted its failing will to restore a broken connection, a golden thread of sentiment between its innocence and a monstrous baseness owing a blind, brutal allegiance to the law of self. What reparations could I make? Are there masses that can be said for the repose of souls that are abroad such nights as this, spirits blown about by the viewless winds, coming in the storm and darkness with signs and portents, hints of memory and presages of doom? This is the third visitation. On the first occasion I was too sceptical to do more than verify by natural methods of the character of the incident. On the second... I responded to the signal after it had been several times repeated, but without result. Tonight's reoccurrence completes the fatal triad, expounded by Parapelius Necromantius. There is no more to tell. When Dampier had finished his story, I could think of nothing relevant that I cared to say, and to question him would have been a hideous impertinence. I rose and bade him good night, in a way to convey him a sense of my sympathy, which he silently acknowledged by a pressure of the hand. That night, alone in his sorrow and remorse, he passed into the unknown. That was Beyond the Wall by Ambrose Pierce. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. There is a boulder in France so delicately balanced it nods affirmatively if the weather's clear and shakes from side to side if a storm is brewing. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a most unique man of letters. When Joseph Bernhard Dolchin said, take a letter, miracles were about to happen. Herr Dolchin, director of the National Library in Munich, Germany, was able to dictate nine letters on nine subjects to nine secretaries in nine languages simultaneously. He also mastered the Bible so thoroughly he could repeat all chapters and books 
from the Old and New Testaments faultlessly from memory, forward or backward. Believe it or not. And we're back. That was, and I made a mistake. I said our second story was the Moonlit Road. Uh, that is actually our episode of our old time radio episode tonight. So sorry about the mistake. Anyway, I have informed Michelle that I owe another ten dollars to the Radio for Human swear jar. Yeah, it's been that sort of day. Uh, but anyway, so we're back, and uh, I think we can we can get rid of the music. Kill the music. Kill the music. My executive producer is an idiot. I'm my executive producer. Uh, anyway, so Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, so set uh Sunday. Uh, they they uh left the mountain. And went back to the forest, and this time around, what I did was I did a little challenge for them. Basically, the Gorgon from the uh, the previous session was still on the lookout, and so basically, I I uh, had them all roll stealth. If they had invisibility, they had advantage, and uh, I just averaged everyone's um, stealth scores, and then um, compared that to. Um, a perception roll from the Gorgon and I added some bonuses because some people were either invisible or um, pra you know practically invisible and uh, basically they had to pass three of these checks in order to get in order for the Gorgon to lose interest and go away and everything was going right until Haley my the current guest PC the current my hmm excuse me, my half-elf artificer um, 
rolled a natural one on his stealth check. And so, yeah, he he got the attention of the Gorgon. He was one of the ones that was invisible. Uh, but he got the attention of the Gorgon in a, in a bad way. And so, um, basically, that triggered the final um, challenge, you know, skill challenge. So basically, again, everyone rolled. Um, whoever had advantage, have advantage. Again, if you're invisible, you get advantage. And then I basically added some bonuses uh, for the, you know, to, to drive up the, the stealth scores of the people who were invisible. Um, and that was enough. Uh, basically, they lucked out because Gorgons, I believe, have like a negative four intelligence mod. Or, a, you know what? I think I messed up. Well, no. Uh, basically, I think, you know, I basically had to do a perception roll um, against their the average of their um, stealth rolls. And then that determined the outcome. And like I said, I'm curious now what its wisdom modifier is because I think I used its intelligence modifier. Oh no, uh, so basically when it looked like they might get caught and the thing is that even though Gorgons are a, a, a you know, below or a CR that is currently below their, their group level because all my players have the same, all, my, all the characters have the same level, um, we do what is called... Um, I forget what it's called. But it's basically, you level up on the plot set when the DM says you do. Um, it's not merit-based, but we don't we don't worry about experience points. Um, but, okay, so yeah, now I remember what happened. So, it looked like they were going to get caught. And again, this thing has, this thing is a challenge rating 5 monster. They're, they're currently level 6. So, yeah, it's below their, at their, their levels as characters, but... Here's the thing, it's got 114 HP, 19 armor class, and has the ability to uh, exhale a petrifying gas in a 30-foot cone, um, which I was worried about. So I'm glad that they um, beat, uh, you know, they got out without... Uh without getting caught because that was what I was really, really worried about. Um, the DC for the Petrifying Breath um, is 13, which for their level isn't that high. But still, if you roll a natural one, you're gonna turn to stone. And on a failure, the target is petrified until freed by the Greater Restoration spell or other magics. Well, they don't have Greater Restoration. So... Yeah, I mean, things could have gone bad. Thankfully, it didn't. Although, like I said, with the bonuses I applied, I basically gave, for everyone who's invisible, a plus five bonus to the final um, average stealth score. If I had been so generous with the bonuses, they probably, you know, there, there would have been, you know, well, I mean, there was still serious risk. But, um... Anyway... Mm. Sorry, I've been up since 7 this morning. 
so anyway, they eventually did um, make it back to town. And on the way, they were told uh, they were told by Ribbon, uh, Daladin's familiar, that Daladin had mail, you know, had had mail for him way in town. And so, basically, when they got back, they they found themselves meeting, basically, someone I kind of made up on the fly, Renard, the Fox Delivery Boy. He works for. He works for a, a an organization called uh, FoxX, Fox Express, and they're basically a group that delivers letters. And when you when you have them deliver, uh, it's called foxing, as in a foxsimile. Waka waka waka. Anyway, uh. They gave him like almost a thousand gold in tips and for other services. No joke. Like uh, Lelk, our innocent goblin ranger, was rolling for every you know every time one d one hundred you know like one or two d one hundreds to determine um, how much gold to give him. It was a lot of gold. Um, I think Lulk alone gave him about 400 gold. So, yeah. Fun, fun, fun. Uh, so anyway, they get letters that basically tell them that uh, because things in ERA, our world, are going so bad... Well, not literally, not not like that, but basically, um, that because things are so um, crazy in in era right now, they they're basically beginning their license as um, wardens. And so, that's it. They're going to graduate. Um, so they met some people. And then, uh, you know, we kind of just partied and celebrated. Because it is, this is a major, um, this is considered, uh, you know, like one of the big turning points. Um. in the story I've kind of you know like I said I don't usually do um a lot of of show prep not show prep I'm sorry game prep like I'll do I'll make some notes but um not like a lot so anyway, um, <laughs> so I, I, oh, they also met Chance, who was out shopping with her dads. 
um, and basically uh, she got the same letter uh, and and it was all it was the same letter um, except tear got tears letter said didn't mention his academic achievements because he didn't have any he's he's kind of dumb um so but anyway so yeah uh next next week we're kind of doing an easy um low-key session where everyone's gonna have at least one scenario um that deals you know that gives them what they're looking you know that has something to do with them um kind of got some some notes but excuse me I'm sorry uh but we'll see and that's that's the that's the uh update Anyway, so we're going to get to episode 9 of the Magnus Archives, uh, A Father's Love. Again, some more lore um, being uh, developed. And uh, like I said, we'll see what happens. Uh, so let's get to it. Again, Magnus Archives, Episode 9, A Father's Love. I've listened to this one before, so I know what, know the basic gist, but you haven't. It's all new to you, so enjoy. And uh, we'll be back right after this. Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 9 A Father's Love
statement of Julia Montauk regarding the actions and motivations of her father, the serial killer Robert Montauk. Original statement given December 3rd, 2002. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. My father was a murderer. There's no way I can reasonably deny it at this point. The evidence provided by the police was overwhelming and I saw his shed myself. I'm not here to try and clear his name. There wouldn't be much point anyway, as I'm sure you know he died in prison last year. Seven years isn't much to have served out of a life sentence, but I doubt it was the early parole he'd have hoped for. Sorry, maybe that wasn't in the best taste. Still, his passing is why I feel like I can tell this story. Something I never really felt free to do before now. I always expected him to talk about it during the media frenzy that surrounded his trial, but for whatever reason he kept quiet. I think I understand a bit more now why he never spoke about it, preferring people draw their own conclusions, but at the time I couldn't fathom why he just sat there silently, letting others talk for him. I'd like to tell someone now, though, and I've only recently finished my court-appointed counselling sessions, so I'd rather not tell the tabloids and have my father killed to fuel cult magic, says Daughter of Monster, splashed over page seven of the weekend edition. So that leaves you guys. Respectable is hardly the word I'd use, but it's better than nothing. So yes, my father killed at least 40 people over the course of the five years prior to his arrest in 1995. I won't recount the lurid details. If you're interested, you can look up Robert Montauk in the newspaper archive of any library. There'll be plenty there. The papers clearly didn't care much about the American bombing, because in April of that year they seemed to be talking about nothing but my father. There are also a couple of books on him, none of which I can really recommend, but I guess Ray Cowan's No Bodies in the Shed is the closest to what I'd consider accurate. Although it does imply that I was an accomplice, despite the fact that I was 12 years old at the time. Honestly, I discovered most of the details from the newspapers and the court, just like everyone else. My father spent my formative years killing dozens of people, and I had no idea. But the more I think back over my childhood, the more sure I am that there was something else going on. I don't have any theories as to what any of this means, but I just need to get it down on paper somewhere. And this seems as good a place as any. I've always lived in the same house on York Road in Dartford. Even now, after all that's happened, and all I know about what went on there, I can't bring myself to leave. As far as I know, the shed came with the house. It always sat in the garden, old, wooden and silent. I don't recall it being used until after the night my mother disappeared. That's when everything started to get strange. My memory of early childhood is patchy, mostly isolated images and impressions, but I remember the night she vanished like it was yesterday. I was seven years old and had been to the cinema that evening for the first time in my life. We had been to see the witches at what back then was the ABC down on Shaftesbury Avenue. I had seen films before, of course, on our tiny living room television, but to see a movie on the big screen was awe-inspiring. The film itself was terrifying, though, and even now I'd say it was far scarier than any child's film has a right to be. I remember I spent a lot of it close to tears, but had been so proud of the fact that I hadn't cried at all. When we got home, I lay awake for a long time. That scene where uh, Luke is transformed into a mouse kept 
playing in my mind, and for some reason it left me too afraid to go to sleep. It was then that I heard a thump from downstairs, like something heavy falling over. I didn't have a clock in my room, so had no idea what the time was, but I recall looking out of the window, and the world was dark and utterly silent. The thump came again, and I decided to go downstairs and see what it was. The landing was almost pitch black, and I tried to be as quiet as possible so nobody would know I was there. The fourth stair down from the top of the staircase always creaked, and still does in fact, but I don't think I've ever heard it creak louder than it did that night as I crept down them so slowly. The light downstairs were all turned off except for the kitchen light, which I could see from the bottom of the stairway. I walked into the kitchen to find it empty. The back door stood open and a cool breeze blew through it that made me shiver in my pyjamas. I saw something shiny laying on the table. Reaching up, I found my mother's pendant. The design had always struck me as beautiful. It was silver, an abstract shape of a hand with a symbol on it that I believe was meant to represent a closed eye. I had never seen her take it off. In my child's mind, I assumed that she had just left it on the table, an accident, and that the open door meant nothing. I went back upstairs, necklace clutched firmly in my hand to return it to her. She wasn't in bed, of course. The space next to where my father lay, fast asleep, was empty. I gently touched my sleeping father's shoulder, and he awoke slowly. I asked him where Mum was, and he started to say something when he saw the silver chain clutched in my hands. He quickly got out of bed and started to get dressed. As he pulled on a shirt, he asked me where I had found it, and I told him on the kitchen table. Following me downstairs, his gaze was immediately locked on the open door, and he paused. Instead of going outside, he walked over to the kitchen sink and turned on one of the taps. Immediately, there began to flow a dark, dirty-looking liquid, and the sick, salty smell of brackish water hit my nose, though at the time I didn't understand that's what it was. The light in the kitchen blew out at that moment, and the room got very dark. My father told me everything was fine, and that I should go back to bed. His hands shook slightly as he took the pendant from me, and I didn't believe him, but I did what I was told anyway. I don't know how long I lay there, waiting for my father to return that night, but I know it was getting light outside when I finally fell asleep. Eventually I woke up. The house was quiet and empty. I had missed the start of school by hours, but that was fine because I didn't want to leave the house. I just sat in the living room, silent and still. It was almost evening again by the time my father actually returned. His face was pale, and he barely looked at me, just walked straight to the cupboard and poured himself a glass of scotch. He sat next to me, drained the glass, and told me that my mother was gone. I didn't understand, still don't really, but he said it with such finality that I started to cry, and I didn't stop for a very long time. My father was a policeman, as I'm sure you've read, so as a child I just assumed that the police had looked for my mother and failed to find her. 
It wasn't until much later that I discovered they'd never even had a missing persons report filed on her. As far as I know, I never had any living grandparents, and apparently no one noticed she was gone, which was strange, as I have vague memories of her having friends over a lot before she vanished. Everyone assumes she was one of my father's first victims, but there was never enough evidence to add it to the official tally. It doesn't really matter. For what it's worth, I don't think he did it. I won't deny it makes sense from the outside, but I remember how devastated he was when she disappeared. He started drinking a lot. I think he did try to look after me as best he could, but most nights he just ended up passed out in his chair. That was also when he started spending a lot of time in the shed. I'd never really paid him much attention before. As far as I was concerned, the sturdy wooden structure was just the home of spiders' nests and the rusted garden tools my parents would use once a year to attack the overgrown wilderness that was our back garden. But soon after my mother's disappearance, a sturdy new padlock was placed on the door. And my father spent a lot of time inside. He told me he was woodworking, and sometimes I'd hear the sound of power tools from inside, and he'd present me with some small wooden token he had made. But mostly there was silence. It should probably have bothered me more than it did, the hours he spent in there, and that odd smell I sometimes noticed, like tinned meat. But I never really paid it much attention, and I had my own grief to deal with. He was gone most nights as well. Often I would wake up from one of my nightmares to find the house silent and empty. I would look for him, and he would be gone. I never despaired at this for some reason, not like I had when my mother vanished. I knew he would return eventually, when he was finished with what I had decided must be police business. Sometimes I'd lie awake until he returned. Once, as I lay awake, I heard him come into my room. I pretended to be asleep, I don't know why, but I thought I'd be in trouble if he found out I was awake. He walked over to me gently stroked my face. His hands smelled strange. Back then I didn't know the scent of blood, and mixed with that faint saline smell of brackish water. He whispered to me then, when he thought I was asleep, promised to protect me, to make sure that it wouldn't get me too. There was a strangled sound to his words, and I think he might have been crying. As he left, I opened my eyes just enough to see him. He stood by the door, his face in his hands wearing light grey overalls that were stained with a thick, black substance. I often wish I'd asked him about that night. I wonder if he'd known I was awake, if I had asked him in that moment of weakness. Well, it's far too late for that now. Over the next couple of years, I noticed that my father seemed to be injured quite a lot, and there was rarely a time when he didn't have some sort of plaster, bandage, or bruise visible. I'd also occasionally find small blood spots or smears on the floors or tables, especially in the hall. I got very good at cleaning them, and it never occurred to me to pay much attention to where they came from. I just assumed the blood was my father's. He started staying home during the day, and told me he'd been permanently assigned to the night shift. I believed him, of course, 
and it was only after his arrest that I discovered that had been the point he'd resigned his job on the police force. I don't know where the money came from after that, but we always seemed to have enough. Knowing what I know now, it sounds awful to say, but those were some of the happiest years of my childhood. I'd lost my mother, but my father doted on me, and together it seemed like we would get past our pain. I know I've made him sound like an alcoholic recluse who lived in the shed, but those were generally nocturnal activities for him. During the day was time he spent with me. There was only one time I recall him going into the shed during the day. This was a couple of years after my mother's disappearance, and I must have been about ten. The phone in the kitchen started ringing, and my father was upstairs. I had recently received permission from my father to answer the phone, so I was excited to take up my new responsibility. I picked up the handset and said my memorized phone script into the receiver. Hello, Montauk residence. A man's voice asked to speak with my father. It was a breathy voice, like that of an old man, and at the time I decided he had a German accent, though when I was young, a lot of different nationalities and accents were lumped together in my mind under the label German. What is this regarding? I asked, as I had a whole phone conversation memorized and wanted to use as much of it as possible. The man sounded surprised at this, and said hesitantly that he was from my father's work. I asked him if he was from the police, and after a pause he said yes. He asked me to tell my father that it was Detective Rayner on the line, with a new case for him. At this point my father had come down to the kitchen to see who was calling. I told him, and he visibly paled. He took the handset from me, and placed it to his ear, not speaking, but listening very intently. After a moment he told me to go up to my room, as this was a grown-up conversation. I turned to leave, but as I was heading up the stairs, the light bulb in the landing blew. The bulbs in our house broke off, and my father said we had faulty wiring. So even at that age, I was quite adept at changing them. So I turned around and headed back downstairs to fetch a new bulb. As I approached the cabinet where we kept them, I heard my father's voice from the kitchen. He was still on the phone, and he sounded angry. I heard him say, no, not already. Do it yourself. Then he went very quiet and listened before finally he said okay, that he'd do it as soon as possible. He put down the phone, then went over to the cupboard and poured himself a drink. He spent the rest of the day in the shed. The one question they kept asking me over and over during the investigation into my father was whether I knew where the rest of the bodies were. I told them the truth that I had no idea. They claimed they wanted to confirm the identities of the victims, which they couldn't easily do with what was left. I didn't know where the bodies were, but I also didn't tell them of the other way they might have identified the victims. My father's photographs. I didn't say anything because I had no idea where he kept them and I thought it would only make things worse if they couldn't find them. But yes, my father took photographs. During those five years, I had gradually started to notice more and more canisters of photographic film left around the house. This puzzled me, since though my dad and I did sometimes go on short holidays, we never took a lot of pictures. 
asking him about it. My father told me he had been trying to learn photography, but didn't trust developers not to ruin his films, as he'd apparently had problems before. I suggested he make himself a darkroom for developing them himself. I'd seen one in Ghostbusters 2 on TV the previous Christmas, and loved the idea of having a room like that. His face lit up, and he said he'd convert the guest bedroom. He then warned me that once it was done, I could never go in there without his supervision, as there would be lots of dangerous chemicals. I didn't care. I was just so glad that an idea of mine had made my father so happy. That summer, my father converted the guest bedroom into a dark room for developing photographs. Like the shed, it was locked almost all the time, but occasionally my father would take me inside, and together we'd develop photographs of cars or trees or whatever else a 10 or 11 year old with a camera takes pictures of. Mostly though, my father worked in there alone and kept the door locked while he did. He seemed almost happy those last couple of years. I didn't have an unsupervised look inside until a few weeks before my father was caught. It was a Saturday evening, in late autumn, and my father was out of the house. I spent the day watching TV and reading, but as it started to get dark, I found myself bored and alone. Passing by the door to what was now the dark room, I noticed that the key was still in the lock. I sometimes think back to that day, wonder if my father left it deliberately. He'd been so careful for so many years, and then he just forgot. I knew about the dangers, but something inside me couldn't resist going in. There were no photos stored there. To this day, I don't know where my father kept his developed pictures. But there were about a dozen images hung out to dry. They're still vivid in my mind, black and white and washed in the deep red of the dark room. Each photo was of a person's face, close up and expressionless. Their eyes were dull and glassy. I had never seen corpses before, so I didn't really understand what I was looking at. On each face were thick black lines that formed these symbols that I didn't recognize, but they were clearly drawn on the faces themselves, not just on the photographs. I don't remember the symbols in any great detail, I'm afraid. Just the faces that they were drawn onto. Though they weren't people I recognized. Nor did they match any of the photos the police showed me later. I never went back in the dark room after I closed and locked the door behind me that day. I spent the next weeks wondering if I should tell my father what I had seen. I didn't know what I had seen, not really. But it felt like a bad secret. I didn't know what to do. Finally, I decided to tell him. He was drinking on the sofa at the time, and he turned off the television as soon as I mentioned going into the dark room. He didn't say a word as I told him what I'd seen, just looked at me with an expression on his face I'd never seen before. When I was finished, he stood up and walked towards me. Before taking me in his arms and giving me the last and longest hug I would ever get from him. He asked me not to hate him, and told me it would soon be over, then turned to go. I had no idea what he was talking about, but when I asked, he just said that I needed to stay in my room until he got back. Then he left. 
I did what I was told. I went up to my room and lay in bed trying to sleep. The air was heavy somehow. In the end, I spent the night staring out of the window at the street below. I was waiting for something, though I didn't know what. I remember it was 2.47 in the morning that it started. I finally had an alarm clock, and the image of it is still clear in my memory. I was thirsty. I went downstairs to get a glass of water. I turned on the tap, but what? flowed out was a thick stream of muddy brown, brackish water. It smelled terrible. I froze as I remembered the last time that had happened. My father still wasn't home, and I went into the living room to watch desperately out of the window. Looking down the street for his return, I was terrified. As I stared down the road, I was struck by how small the puddles of light were from the street lamps stretching far into the distance. But not as far as they should have gone. There were fewer lights than there should be, I was sure of it. Then I saw the light at the end of the road blink off. There was no moon out that night, and all the houses were quiet. When the street lights stopped, there was nothing but black. The next closest street light failed, then the next, and the next slow, rolling blanket of darkness making its unhurried way towards me. The few lights still on in the houses along the road also disappeared as the tide approached. I just sat there, unable to look away. Finally it reached our house, and all at once the lights were gone, and the darkness was inside. I heard a knock on the front door, firm, unhurried and insistent silence. I did not move. The knocking came again, harder this time, and I heard the door rattle on its hinges. As it got louder, it began to sound less and less like a person knocking, and more like wet meat being slammed against the sturdy wood of the front door. I turned and ran towards the phone. Picking it up, I heard a dial tone and would have cried with relief if I wasn't crying with fear. I dialed the police, and as soon as they picked up, I started to babble about what was happening. The lady on the other end was patient with me, and kept on gently insisting I give her the address, until finally I was composed enough. Almost as soon as I had told her where I was, I heard the door begin to splinter. I dropped the phone, and ran towards the back of the house. As I did so, I heard the front door burst behind me, and I heard a, a growl. It was rumbling deep and breathy like a wild animal, but had a strange tone to it that I've never been able to place. No matter where I turned, it sounded like it came out of the darkness right behind me. I didn't have time to think about it as I ran into the back garden and into a light that I did not expect. There in front of me was the shed. It glowed a dull, pulsing blue from every crack and seam. I didn't stop, though, as I heard again that growl behind me, and I ran towards it and pulled at the door. The shed was not locked that night. To this day, I don't know if I regret that fact. The first thing I saw when I opened that door was my father, bathed in the pale blue light, 
I couldn't see any source for the glow, but it was so bright. He was knelt in the center of an ornate chalk pattern, scrawled on the rough wood of the floor. In front of him lay a man I didn't know, but he was clearly dead. His chest had been cut open, still gaped and bled feebly. In one hand, my father held a wicked-looking knife, and in the other he held the man's heart. My father was chanting, and as the song rose and fell, the heart in his hand beat to its rhythm, and the blue light brightened and dimmed in time. I looked at the walls, and noticed that they were covered in shelves, each of which contained glass jars full of what I would later learn was formaldehyde, containing a single heart, which also beat in time with the one that dripped in my father's hand. It was an odd thing to notice at the time, but I remember that the dead man wore the same pendant as my mother, a silver hand with a closed eye design. I don't know how long I stood there staring. It might have been hours, or it might have been only a moment or two. But then I heard that growl behind me and sensed a presence so close that I could feel the darkness on my back. Before I could react or move or scream, my father's chant came to a crescendo, and he plunged the dagger into the beating heart. All at once the presence vanished, and the blue glow died. I could no longer hear the beating of the hearts. In the silence, I realized I could hear police sirens in the distance. I heard my dad tell me he was sorry, and then he started to run. You know the rest. Manhunt, trial, prison, death. They say there were forty hearts kept in that shed, not including his last victim. But of course the police didn't arrive until all that was left of it was a grisly trophy cabinet. Whatever I had seen my father doing in there, its effects had long since vanished. I don't know why my father did what he did, and I doubt I ever will. But the more I go over these events in my head, the more sure I am that he had his reasons. Statement ends. There's not much more to be added here. The police reports on Robert Montauk are predictably thorough, and there are few details to be added. The vast majority of research into this case has already been done by the serial killer enthusiast community, which, though deeply unsettling, does often prove to be surprisingly useful in high-publicity cases like this. In addition to the body of one Christopher Lorne, forty preserved hearts were recovered from Robert Montauk's shed. They were arranged on the walls on individual shelves, forming patterns of eleven hearts on each inner wall and seven on the wall with the door. Photos of the patterns match up to the various formula of sacred geometry, but don't appear to correspond exactly with any specific school. Of possible significance also is the fact that the rest of the bodies were never found. The symbol on the two pendants is that of the People's Church of the Divine Host, a small cult that grew around the defrocked Pentecostal minister Maxwell Rayner in London during the late 80s and early 90s. I knew I recognised the name from Statement 1106922, though currently it just looks like a coincidence. 
Christopher Lorne was a member of the church, and his family hadn't heard from him in the six years prior to his murder. Mr. Rayner himself disappeared from public view sometime in 1994, and the group fragmented shortly afterwards. The police made many attempts to follow up on this lead in the Montauk case, but were never able to locate any members willing to make statements. The house on York Road is still inhabited, though the current owners pulled down the shed over a decade ago and replaced it with a patio. Robert Montauk died in Wakefield Prison on November the 1st, 2002. He was stabbed 47 times and bled out before anyone found him. After reading this statement, three points of interest occur. No culprit or weapon was ever found connected to the killing. He was apparently alone in his cell at the time, which was supposed to be locked. And at the time of his death, the light bulb in his cell was found to have blown out, leaving him in darkness. Recording ends. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced by Alexander J. Newell and Murray Porter and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. Is stranger than fiction. This is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. Peter Minowit, who bought Manhattan Island for all of $24, was fired by the Dutch for extravagance. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the man who knows precisely when he will die. The coronation of a newly elected Temney chief has a touch of the macabre to it. During the coronation, the camarade, or chief counselor, conducts the chief to the beach, which is strewn with a variety of pebbles. The ruler, blindfolded, grabs as many pebbles as he can hold in one fist. The pebbles are carefully counted, and the ruler is allowed one year of life for each pebble he was able to grab. At the expiration of his allotted span, a new ruler is chosen, the old ruler poisoned. Believe it or not.
It would help if I remembered to open my mic. And we're back! That was episode 9 of the Magnus Archives of Father's Love. On the surface, it seems like uh, this father was just a crazy serial killer, but there's more to that story as we get further into the depths of the Magnus Archives. Anyway, we will be going a little long tonight, but that's okay. I'm on vacation, and it's Halloween. Objectively, the greatest, most wonderful time of the year. You know, all those Christmas people, oh, there's something wrong with you if you don't like Christmas. No, there's something wrong with you if you don't realize why Christmas is terrible. But anyway... Uh, so yeah, that, uh, hope you enjoyed that. We're gonna get to our old-time radio show, uh, selection for tonight. And that is, uh, the November 30th, 1970 broadcast of The Black Mass, which was an adaptation of Ambrose Bierce's The Moonlit Road. Nope! Wait, I forgot! We forgot the strange Dr. Weird. <laughs> anyway, tonight's episode of the strange Dr. Weird is the bro the December 19th, 1944 broadcast of the strange Dr. Weird, The White Pearls of Freedom. So, yeah, we'll get some music going back. But, uh, yeah, like I said, I, I hope you're enjoying the Magnus Archives. That is a show I have confirmed I'm allowed to run on this broadcast on this program, uh, basically, uh, because it's, it's, um, distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share, share like license, which basically means as long as I give, give them credit and don't try and say, oh, I made the Magnus Archives, it's okay. And I'm not going to try and claim I made the Magnus Archives. I'm not that creative. Um, so there you have it. Anyway, we're going to go to uh, the strange Dr. Weird. And of course, we've got uh, our old-time radio offering. And then uh, we'll end the show with our Pod People segment, of course. And also a preview of what you can expect here on Radio for Humans. You know what? Well, let, let's real quickly uh, axe the music for a second uh, so I can get to this. Uh, Sunday... I will be doing, uh, me and Paul and I don't know who else, uh, I've already extended the offer to, uh, Kenny Pick and his lovely wife, the Suze, aka Susan, uh, to join me, but basically I'll be doing a special broadcast of Dread Time Stories and Paul will be doing a rerun of his Saturday night, Paul's Memory Bank, which will be focused on, um, the famous Orson Welles Mercury Radio Theater production of... Um, oh, damn, War of the Worlds. That's it, War of the Worlds. Um, always fun to hear that. Orson Welles was a genuine, you know, I mean, it's kind of sad to see how he his life ended because he kind of was a joke in the end. You watch some of his, like, later commercials, you'll understand why. And I'm not saying that to mock the man. I mean, he deserved better. I will. T that's how I genuinely feel. He deserved better, but at the same time, he just came off as pompous and like I know better. And you know, yeah, he'd been doing radio for 50, like fifty years. You know, he'd been doing he'd been in broadcast for fifty years. It's but um, 
it was just like I said towards the end he was just kind of a joke like like people you know have done parodies of his commercials you know uh, the Animaniacs the Pinky, uh, Pinky and the Brain famously did a parody of, of like this, this series of commercials he did and again it's funny it's not that it isn't funny it's just like you, you think about how great of a man Orson Welles was for him to you know to just kind of end on that note is kind of sad but uh, of course his last role famously was that of Unicron in Transformers the movie um, and it was famously said that by the end he was so he was so physically weak he couldn't talk very well uh, but anyway that's going to be fun we're, I'm really looking forward to that and I will also be doing so uh, the story we're going to be doing is Washington Irving's legendary story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. We will have an old-time radio um, adaptation of that as well. And I'm going to do a reading of The Raven. Myself. So, yeah, it's going to be fun. We might even get... You know what? I might even do a reading of uh, Inner Grove by Ryunosuke Akutagawa because it's a great story. And it really uses the unreliable narrator trope extremely well. It's not necessarily a ghost story, but there are supernatural elements to it. Uh, but it is a great story nonetheless. And uh, I might be doing a reading of uh, Tale, Tale of the Heike soon. Um, but another thing is, don't forget, of course, we have our Patreon. Please, 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 if you enjoy this program, please consider donating to our Patreon. If you enjoy all the programs here at Radio for Human, please consider <clears throat> um, donating to the Radio for Humans Patreon. Uh, we got things going on. Um, we're looking at uh, ways to get a music license again, but doing so is going to require your support. I'm, I'm going to be really honest. Uh, our donations have gone down, and I can't. I know I can't afford to take this. Um, you know, hundred. You know, we're looking at the minimum is around a hundred a month and and that's just like 1500 listener hours which is not a lot one person listening all day every day for a month would be half of our allotment of hours uh, but um again we're looking at it we're considering it but again whether or not we pull the trigger on this is going to depend largely on you our listeners because again I know I can't afford to cut, you know, a $200, you know, $100, $200 hole in my budget every month. Um, but we'll hopefully have some announcements about that soon and some other um, direct, you know, other stuff about the directions this radio network is taking. Again, if we get our music license back, you can look forward to the return of uh, Gods and Monsters, The Night Show. Well, I think Kenny, Kenny did not mention Night Show, but... If we get the, the music license back, I'm going to lean on him hard to do the night show. I'm going to be brutally honest. Midnight Sun, which was my radio program every Saturday night, starting at uh, 11 p.m. Eastern, uh, where we play music from anime, video games, J-pop, J-rock, movies, um, and some some classic mainstream rock, too. You know, I mean, I'm a huge, you know, one of my great regrets in life is not seeing Van Halen before um, Eddie passed away because Eddie was the heart of that band. He, of course. I mean, it was named after him. It was named Van Halen. But um, even if they had continued 
to perform, it just wouldn't have been the same. I mean, yeah, you can get someone in there to do guitar. And I'm not knocking it. I'm not saying, like, no one can ever match Eddie Van Halen. You know? But again, he, he was the heart of Van Halen. And I just think... I think they made the right decision to disband after the death of Eddie. I, I really do. Uh, but again, I regret not seeing Van Halen. So I'm a Van Halen fan. Bob Seger fan. Uh, Jim Crotchy. Love Jim Crotchy. My dad... Uh, I would listen to Jim Crotchy a lot as a kid. Because that's what my dad would play. And so, you know, bad Leroy Brown... Um, you don't mess around with Jim. I mean, and that was another tragic life. You know, he passed away. He was he. I mean, he was so young. And one of his last songs was "Time in a Bottle," which is about you know wanting to spend his life with his son. And let me tell you, if you ever hear um, his son perform, he he looks and sounds just like his father. Dead serious. I haven't seen him in person, but I've seen like pictures and videos. But anyway, we're going to get to The Strange Doctor Weird. I've gabbed enough. We're going to get to The Strange Doctor Weird. And then, uh... Old Time Radio. So yeah, we're going to go about at least half an hour over. Probably a little longer. Um, again, we're just kind of... This first, the season one, we're kind of feeling things out. Make some adjustments. Who knows? I might just go to a full three-hour time slot. Gunling thing better do on Wednesdays. But anyway, we'll get back to it. Strange Dr. Weird. The White Pearls of Freedom. haunted South Pacific, and I call it White Pearls of Freedom. And now for my story, White Pearls of Terror. In the small harbor of the tiny island of Barota, a barren, desolate bit of coral lost in the South Pacific, a dilapidated pearling boat rides at anchor. In a trading shack of corrugated iron on the shore, two burly bearded white men watch a half-breed merchant gather together supplies, listening as they wait to the monotonous beating of a native drum in the darkness outside. For Pete's sake, Wong, what's that infernal racket anyway? Our father sacrifices chicken to turn away anger of the storm god, Captain Blake. Well, tell him to stop it. It's getting on my nerves. Take it easy, Blake. We'll be gone in a few minutes. The glass is falling fast, and there is a storm coming up. We're in the typhoon season now, you know. And I'll be plenty glad to see the last of this rotten speck of coral, believe me. 
Even though we're leaving with empty pockets, we can't go too soon. Wong, sorry you'll find no pearls. Another year better, maybe. Uh, here are supplies. Eleven dollars, please. All right, pay him, Phelps. In a moment. Wong, why do you and your father live all alone here on Barota? Don't you ever find it lonely? Wong, an honored father, never lonely, Mr. Phelps. You know, Wong, in Tahiti, I met a native who knew you. He told me your mother was Chinese and your father used to be a Tahiti witch doctor. Uh, it's true. You pay now, please. He told me something else, too. He said the two of you live here because you know a secret pearling bed down the reef. No. And that even in that stinking back room of yours, you have a leather bag full of the finest white pearls that ever came out of the South Seas. No, no. It's not true. Oh, I think it is. Grab him, Blake. No, 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 no. Stand still, Wong, or I'll break your arm. It's not true, Wong. I'm honored for to have no pearls. Can I say it is true? And so we're not leaving Barota with empty hands. Before we leave, Wong, you're going to tell us where you keep those pretty white pearls. Phelps, I'm going out there and put a bullet through that infernal witch doctor father of Wong's. That drum is driving me crazy. Oh, stop it, Blake. We've got to finish with Wong and get away. There's a storm coming up and we've got to be well offshore when it hits. All right, then, make him talk. A little more pressure on this cord around his forehead. Oh, oh. Yeah, well, oh, Wong. Yes, Wong, Cal. Wong, Cal. Oh. Yeah, it's more oh. like it. Ah, oh. where are they? The corner behind you. Oh, a board is loose. Take oh. a look, Blake. Right, you are. Oh. Bring it here. Let's take a look. Yeah. Hold out your hand. I'll pour them out. Oh. Oh. Look. Six white pearls as big as marbles. Only six. And yeah, there should be more. Where are the rest? Oh, no more, please. Six pearls all... Wait all... a minute. I think he's telling the truth. It helps. Listen to that thunder, will you? we got to get outside the reefs in a hurry. All right. I thought there'd be more. But these six will do nicely. Ah, they should bring a couple of thousand apiece. In two months, we'll be in San Francisco living like kings. No. Too late. What do you mean? Huh? Listen. The drum. It's getting louder. Listen to it. Now it stopped. And God of the storm has answered. Prayer of honored father for vengeance accepted. What are you talking about? Honored father knows you torture Wong. In the darkness he makes prayer to bring punishment. Now he will make sacrifice. Listen. Ah! What was that? Honored father makes greatest sacrifice to his gods. He gets his own life. Right. Now you have pearls, but they bring you only evil. They bring you death, the creeping death that walks with you in life. When you hear the drum, think of the father of Wang and the death. Help, shut you. him up, will you make death. it stop? Oh, death. shut him up. Oh, the, 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 oh, oh. Yeah, that's it. Now they're both dead. Come on, we got to get to the boat. Uh, hey, folks. Huh? Listen to that wind. It's too late. We can't get away. We can't get away. Our story will continue in a moment. But first, is there a doctor in the house? Young man, I am a doctor. Oh, so you are, Dr. Weird, after a fashion. But uh, can you handle this case? Like your all cases. Permanently. Well, here are the facts. The patient is seen frequently in business offices, on street corners, everywhere. His clothes are always neat, impeccably stylish, yet something about him just isn't right. Brief diagnosis shows he's in perfect shape, except for his hat. Gentlemen, this may be your case. 
Too often, a poorly made shapeless hat can spoil your whole appearance. Don't take chances. Choose a smart, up-to-the-minute Adam. They're correctly shaped and styled and made of the finest all-fur felt. No wonder men who are tops in the business, sport, and entertainment world wear an Adam. For Adam is tops in hats. So stop in at any Adam store or authorized dealer. There are thousands from coast to coast. And set yourself up in a nice new Adam hat. Now, Dr. Weird. And now to continue my story, White Pearls of Terror. For two days, a typhoon raged over the tiny island of Barota, while Phelps and Blake cowered inside the trading shack that had belonged to the dead half-breed merchant Wong. The wind hurled their boat on the reefs and sank it, blew down most of the palm trees on the island, carried away the storehouse where Wong's provisions had been kept. When at last the wind died and the sun shone again, Blake and Phelps crawled out of the shack to stare dazedly at a scene of utter desolation. Phelps, look, the boat's gone. We're stranded here. I tell you, we're stranded here. Oh, stow it, Blake. There'll be a trading vessel along soon. Yeah, but suppose there isn't. We'll, we'll die here. The grub's all been washed away. The palm trees are down. We'll starve to death. It's the curse. The curse Wong's father put on us. We shouldn't have taken the pearls. We shouldn't have taken them. I said stow it. Suppose we have to stay here a few months. We got the shack for shelter and we can live on shellfish. We still got the pearls. When we do get away, we'll live like kings. We'll never get away. We're going to die here. All during the storm, I heard that drum beating. The witch doctor's drum telling us we're going to die here. Get that grip on yourself, will you? Wong's dead. And the old witch doctor's dead, too. Their bodies are gone. The sharks have finished them by now. When we are rescued, we only have to say they were killed in a storm. And we'll be in the clear. We'll be all right. Now, now the drum. I heard it beating. We'll never get away. We're going to die. This will shut you up. Oh, yeah. I say we're going to be all right. days became weeks, and the weeks became months. Blake and Phelps lived on shellfish and coconuts and drank rainwater. Day after day, they scanned the horizon, a sign of a rescue ship. And day after day, Blake's despair mounted. Blake, Blake, come on, get up. It's your turn to go down to the beach and dig clams and keep an eye out for a ship. No, it's no use. We're never going to be rescued. We may be rescued today. Come on now, turn out. I tell you, we're going to stay here forever. We're going to die here. We're still alive, ain't we? Alive. Nothing to eat but clams and crabs and coconuts. I'd rather be dead. You hear me? I'd rather be dead. I tell you, we're going to be rescued. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow. Listen. Did you hear that? No. I didn't hear anything. There it goes again. Don't you understand? It's a ship. We're as good as rescued right now. I didn't hear anything except the drum. The old witch doctor's drum. It's beating again, just like it did that night. Blake, get hold of yourself. Come on. I'll prove that was a ship we heard. Here, come on down to the shore. The drum. I can hear the drum. Look. Look, Blake. A British gunboat off the reefs. And a ship's boat heading for the shore. We're saved. No, it's too late. The drum. He said when we heard the drum... To remember his vengeance, the creeping death. Blake, get hold of yourself, will you? They see us. They're calling us. Oh, we're saved. And we got the pearls. In a month, we'll be in San Francisco living like 
king. Oh, no, it's too late. The drum is beating. It's bewitching the pearls. We haven't got any pearls anymore. They've stuck to your face now. Uh, Little round pearls, two of them, three of them. They're stuck to your face. No, I tell you, there's no drums beating. It's just your mind. It's a... <gasps> Ah, now you hear it too, don't you? No, but on your face. Two little white spots, silvery white spots. Yes, they're the pearls that have been bewitched. The drum, you listen to it? Blank. Oh, silvery spots. The drum, it won't stop. Blank, we've been on this island almost a year. Living in that stinking little shack where Wong and his father lived. Eating out of their dishes. Sleeping in their blankets. Yeah, it's louder and louder. No, I know why Wong and his father lived here all alone. They didn't want anyone to know. That's what the marks on our face mean. The creeping death. The drum. It says that we're never going to get away. That we're going to die here. Yes, you're right. We are going to die here someday. Because now nobody's ever going to take us off the island. Wong and his father were lepers. And now we're lepers too. Since we've been on this island, we've both become lepers. How do you feel now? Perhaps what you really need to steady your nerves is a nice trip. A voyage to the South Seas. You could stop at Barota and meet Phelps and Blake. Yes, they're still living there, quite alone. They'd welcome a little company and... It... Oh, you're going? We'll drop in again soon. I'm always home. Just look for the house. On the other side of the cemetery, the house of Dr. Weir. Den Hartog of Oskaloosa, Iowa, smoked the same cigar twice in 50 years. He smoked half of it on his wedding day and saved the other half for his golden wedding anniversary 50 years later. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the world's richest heiress. You'd think a man with money would know something about arithmetic, but not the husband of Countess Elizabeth Angelique de Boteville of 17th century France. In his will, he left his wife one gold piece worth $5 for the first year of her widowhood. This amount was to be doubled each year as long as she remained unmarried. The countess lived 69 years, and her legal claim amounted to about $737 quintillion. Believe it or not.
And we are back. That was the strange Dr. Weird. The White Pearls of Freedom. <laughs> you know, I noticed that the that Dr. Weird Dr. Weird uh, kept changing the title of the story. But that's okay. Anyway, we're going to get to our old-time radio offering tonight. That is the November 30th, 1970 broadcast of the Black Mass. An adaptation of Ambrose Bierce's um, The Moonlit Road. Then we'll get back and we'll go over what you can expect to hear this week uh, for the rest of the week on Radio for Humans. And uh, we'll close the show with our Pod People segment. We'll be back right after this. Tonight, a ghost story by Ambrose Bias. Here is The Moonlit Road. You haven't touched your tea, Mr. Stephen. Shall I warm it? Don't fuss, Ellen. Please don't fuss. Sherry, then. No, I have it here. Well, this pillow will be more comfortable. Oh, Ellen, stop. I'm not helpless yet. What you can do is close the terrace window. There's a draft again. Oh, Mr. Stephen, but the window's closed. There's no draft, not from here. Not open? Good I feel. Oh, yes, well... Never mind, then. It's a chill you have, Mr. Stephen. And I'm going to have Billy fetch Dr. Benson. For God's sake, stop, Ellen. Stop it. Get Billy to stoke up the fire, and that's all. Now, let me alone. Yes, sir. No. Not a draft? Well, they'll have the house to themselves now soon enough. 
As you can see, I am the most unfortunate of men. I am rich. I am respected and well-educated and, until just recently, of sound health. I'm the only child of Joel and Julia Hetman. My father was a well-to-do country gentleman. His wife, my mother, was a beautiful and obedient woman to whom he was passionately attached with what I now can suspect was a jealous and exacting devotion. The details that I can relate hardly add up to a story. Indeed, they could fit together in any number of ways. I've imagined all sorts, with feelings so opposed that they've worn down finally to no feeling at all. Doesn't matter now. It ought never to have mattered. Briefly, then, I was a student at Yale. One day, I received a telegram from my father of such urgency that in compliance with its unexplained demand, I, I left at once for home. Father? Father? Uh, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, uh, this way. Uh... Stephen, it's terrible to have to tell you this way. Well, tell me, for God's sake, what is it? Uh, your mother. It's your mother, Stephen. What's happened? She's ill. Dying. Father, now what's happened? She's dead, Stephen. But how? Murdered. Barbarously murdered. Murdered? Why? About whom? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know anything. I had gone to, to Nashville. I didn't expect to be back before the following afternoon. There was a complication, and I returned home the same night. It was late, nearly, nearly dawn. I found I had no latchkey. I didn't want to wake the servant, so I walked around to the back. I don't know why the doors are always locked. Um, but to my surprise, the back door was open. It was standing open, as if someone had just used it. Uh, I entered and went upstairs to your mother's room. In the darkness, I stumbled over I'll spare you the details, save to say that she was already dead. Strangulation. But why? Was anything taken from the house? No, nothing. So far as we could see. But what about the servants? Hadn't they heard any sound? No, no, nothing. And the assassin? Is there no trace of him? No, nothing. But those uh, terrible finger marks on her throat. Dear God, that I may forget them. I gave up my studies and remained with my father. He was greatly changed. He had always been of a sedate, taciturn disposition. Now he had fallen into so deep a dejection that nothing could hold his attention. Yet anything could arouse him to a fitful interest... A footfall, a sudden entrance, one might have called it an apprehension. 
Hey, uh, who's there? Who, who is it? It's only me, Father. Oh. Oh, come in. Uh, well, don't stand there in the dark that way. Uh, shall we take our walk this evening? No. No, the garden's chilly, and I'm tired. I think I'll go to my room directly. I worry about you, Father. I know that this whole thing has been terrible for you, but you've become too melancholy. Have you taken to sleepwalking as well? Sleepwalking? Why? Last night, didn't you enter my room? I heard steps along the hall, and then my door opened. Someone stood there in the doorway. I thought it was you, and I called out. When I turned on the light, you'd gone. Got to the door only soon enough to see your door closing down the hall. Wasn't it you, Father? Can you remember? No. No, no, it, it wasn't me. It must have been your mother. She worries if you come in. Yes, yes, I, I remember. She got up during the night and then came back. Well, she couldn't have. Stephen, what are you trying to do? Do? Isn't it bad enough for me now? Must you make things worse with your, your fantasies, your, your imagining? Well, it might have been a servant. It must have been Ellen. Yeah, she's always doting over you. Well, I only wondered that it... Well, if it wasn't you, it might have been... What do you mean? Well, I mean that the assassin might have returned, might still be in the house. That, that's nonsense. Uh, nonsense. Why? He's never been found. He's still uh, somewhere. Uh, yes, I suppose. Father, have you told me everything that happened that night? Of course. What else? Why do you ask? Because it doesn't make sense. Mother was adored by everyone. She was the kindest woman who ever walked the earth. No sane creature could possibly want to hurt her. Sane? Why, why do you say sane? Father, did she have a lover? Stephen! Was that it? Uh, Is that who opened the back door that night you came back from uh, Asheville? Are you hiding that from me to save her memory? Oh, stop! He might have done it. I could imagine that. Mother loved you. I know that. She was devoted to you. She'd never have been unfaithful, but she was kind to everyone. I can imagine his jealousy, his fury at her refusing him. Stephen, stop this. Well, what did happen? She was murdered. Isn't that enough? Enough? Yes. But is it enough for her? Uh, is she still here in this house? Does she haunt us, searching for her lover? Or her murderer? Does she blame us, Father? Stephen, let it alone. For God's sake, let it alone. I never saw her, but I was convinced that her ghost walked the house. The terrible cold of the presence of the dead was everywhere. Perhaps he saw her. I could not. But there were moments at night 
Stephen. Oh, Stephen. Mother! Stephen. The iciness of the grave. The smell of decay. No. I won't see your cat! But I imagined. I saw her face hideous. White with hate. Rotting. Rotting. No! No, go away! I am not your assassin! I am not your assassin! One night, a few months later, my father and I were returning home from our evening's walk. A full moon was high above the horizon, and the road, save for the black shadows of the bordering trees, was a ghostly white. As we approached the gate of our dwelling, my father suddenly stopped. Uh, uh, he clutched my arm. Uh, father, what's the matter? There. Uh, there, there. What is that? I see nothing, Father. There. There at the gate. Directly ahead. There's there. nothing, Father. Come on now. We'd better go in. No. You're ill. No, go away. Oh, go away. Father, what do you see? No, Julia, no. No. I tried to follow no. him, but for some reason couldn't move from the spot. Go away. The chill had touched my face. Julia. It was all about me. Julia. I couldn't turn my head. No, no, leave me alone. Leave me alone. When I turned to look for my father, he was gone. And in all the years that have passed, no whisper of his fate has reached me. I remained here. My youth of brilliant parts and promise faded. Its lifeblood drained, sifted into the darkness and the silence of this house. Voices seek me out. I hear them not, but only doubt. Doubt, doubt, and emptiness. say I was alive. Alive. And tomorrow. Well, there's no tomorrow. No yesterday. 
There's nothing beyond that forest. Those trees. That's all I can remember back to. Forest. Twenty years ago, I, I came out of a forest. Made my way across the country. All the way to this place. Well, that was something. That was something. I didn't even know my name. I, I called myself... I called myself Casper. Casper. Every, everyone wants to know, what's your name? What's your name? In this world, everyone must have a name. It, it prevents confusion, even when it does not establish our identity. Casper prevented confusion and spent 20 years trying to find a, a comfortable way to die. There, there's some small light, though, of a past. I don't believe it. I can't believe it. That's the only thing that seems like a recollection. Even if it's wrong or confused. The only thing I have of that life. Two scenes that play over and over. First, there's a house, a big house, owned by a prosperous planter. And there's a, there's a woman, a beautiful woman, like a child. And a boy, their son. And he's a vague figure, never clear, usually not there at all. The father loves the wife terribly, but he's tortured by, by a fear that she doesn't belong to him. He, he, he can seem to believe her devotion, her love, and, and, and he's reduced to vulgar and commonplace ways of testing her. Uh, one day, one day, he goes to the city. It tells her, I'll be gone till the next afternoon. But, but I'll come back. I'll come back that night. And go to a rear door that I had left unlocked. It's dark all around the house. But as I approach, I hear something. The door is open. And a figure. A man. I thought it was a man. I feared it was a man. Sometimes now I can't even believe it was human. He he headed straight for me, then just disappeared in the dark. I didn't know where to chase him. So intensely did my 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 jealousy and rage fill me. I didn't search. I rushed into the house and up the stairs. Up the stairs to her room, and I, 
我受不了照啊。I saw the bed, vaguely. The covers tossed about. I went to it. Empty. She was gone. Escaped. Or hiding. Hiding. I looked. I looked about in the darkness. Walked straight to a corner where she knelt against the wall. I could see her face, the terror in her eyes, the guilt, the guilt. Ah! My hands were at her throat. I, I kneeled on her struggling body, and there, there in the darkness, I strangled, strangled her till she was dead, dead. Dead, <laughs> dead. <laughs> no, no, it never happened. It never happened. I don't believe it. Oh, I was possessed, uh, possessed by something or someone. But it's all I have. It's all that comes from me. I go over it again and again. Now, there's another scene, another dream, another vision of the night. I stand among shadows along a moonlit road. Someone is with me. I cannot see who, but there's another presence. Head where the road ends at a gate, in the shadow of the large house. I catch the gleam of white garments, then the figure of a woman before me on the road. Ah, ah, my wife, Julia. Murdered, death in the face, marks, marks on the throat, eyes are fixed on man with an an infinite sadness, sadness, not hate, not menace, but the apparition terrifies me, terrifies me, still terrifies me. She still reaches out to me here. No, no. Drink up. Drink up. This does it. Wipes it out. Wipes it out for a little while, for a little while. Assassin. 
It's no use. And it only confuses me why he's so fearful. He doesn't see me. He never saw me. I can't imagine what he would see now. But fear has no sense at all. It's crazy. Just crazy. It makes horrible things out of those who want only kindness and some peace. I keep wandering among these scenes, these rooms, in search of something that just doesn't matter anymore, what really happened. No one seems to know. Joel's gone, and there's only Stephen left for a little while. Stephen's my son. He wasn't here at the time. He was away at college. Joel wasn't here either. He'd gone to Nashville on some business and was staying the night. I'd retired early and fallen into a peaceful sleep, but then I awoke. The house seemed more than usually quiet. I had a strange sense of danger, of something. Well, not that I was afraid of being alone. I was often alone. But this was different. There was a chill. As one waits for a thing long imagined or feared. And the feeling grew as I lay there. I felt as if I were lying straight and cold in my coffin. The white satin around my head. The smell of dried flowers. A little bouquet I held in my hand. I wanted to pull my fingers apart, but couldn't, as in a dream. No, no. I strained for some sign of life in me. And then, oh, I could feel my heart pounding. It was a dream. I sat up in the dark and listened. My own heart was the only sound at first. I listened and after a while I wondered if the beating came from inside me or somewhere else. I tried to hear which. And then as if my own fears had decided, had reached out into the dark house and began to assemble some figure, something. I heard it first on the stairway from the back entrance just below my room. A soft, irregular sound of footfalls on the stairs. It was slow, hesitant, uncertain, as of something that did not see its way. To my disordered reason, all the more terrifying for that, as the approach of some blind and mindless malevolence to which there is no appeal. I said that fear has no brains. It's an idiot. But this had a growing purpose. Taking shape as it approached. It approached my door. And then stood there. I heard the breath. He hesitated. His hand on the door. And it... It turned... And went away, down the stairs, hurriedly. As if in sudden fear, I rose to call for help. But hardly had my shaken hand found the doorknob when... 
I heard it returning. It ran up the stairs, shaking the house. I fled to a corner of the room and crouched on the floor. I, I tried to crowd. I tried to call Joel, my husband. But suddenly, it was in the room, searching me out. Oh, it had gone to the bed and stopped there and turned and came directly to me. I felt a strength of clutch upon my throat. I beat feebly against something that bombed backwards. I felt my tongue thrust itself between my And then I passed into this life. No, I have no knowledge of what it was. The sum of what we know at death is the measure of what we know afterwards. No new light falls upon any page of it. In memory is written all that we can read. We hide in the dark and peer out into the dim light of the present and the fading past. But there is one more scene, a night. We know when it is night, for then you retire to your houses, and we can venture from our places of concealment to move unafraid about our old home, to look in at the windows, even to enter rooms and gaze upon your faces as you sleep. I could see my husband, Joel, and Stephen, how strange they looked. How alone. Had they loved me after all? They were saddened and aged by my departure. I tried so often to make them see me. Some way to let them know I was here. And send them my great love and pity. But always if I dared approach, awake them in their sleep... They would turn toward me the terrible eyes of the living, frightening me. And I would hesitate, as if my hand was now upon the door, and turn away. On this night I had searched for them, but they were nowhere in the house. I looked about the moonlit lawn, and then moved in the white light along the path to the gate. Suddenly, I saw them on the road. They had stopped walking and were looking toward the house. I heard their voices. They stood in the shadow of a group of trees. They stood near, so near. Their faces were turned toward me. And Joe, Joel's eyes were fixed on mine. He saw me. At last, he saw me. All my terror and hesitation was gone. He sees. He sees. He will understand. I moved forward, smiling and consciously beautiful, to offer myself to his arms, to comfort him, to speak words that would restore the broken bonds between the living and the dead. Joel. 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 But his face went white with fear. 
His eyes were those of a hunted animal. Leave me alone. He backed away and ran. Ran right into the woods. He never returned. Maybe he died. Wanders about some other places I do here. And Stephen. Poor Stephen is left even more alone. You haven't touched your teeth. I've never been able to make him know that I'm here. Watching him. Longing to care for him as a mother should. But soon he too must pass to this life invisible. And be lost to me. Lost. Oh, Lost. Mr. Stephen, but the window's closed. There's no draft, not That was The Moonlit Road by Ambrose Bierce. The part of Julia was played by Norma Jean Wanvick. Stefan was Martin Punch. Ellen was played by Nancy Punch. And Joel was played by your host of the Black Mass, Eric Bowersfeld. The technical production was by John Whiting. And now, good night. And we are back for the final portion of our show again, going a little long tonight. Uh, but like I said, uh, the whole point of doing this first season for the Halloween season is just to kind of get a feel for the format, make changes. Um, and some changes are going to be coming just because, um, again, I do believe that the two hour format Kenny and Susan premiered, you know, developed is best for this sort of program. So. Uh, we're still going to work on shooting for that sweet spot of two, you know, two, two and a half hours. Um, it might mean just start to drop some of our serials, um, like, you know, Strange Doctor Weird, drop that, you say 15 minutes, we, we, we were done 15 minutes ago. But, uh, anyway, 
We can get rid of the music. Kill the music, please, executive producer. Yes, sir. We have a we have a crew of exactly one moi, yours cruelly. Anyway, um, so what can you expect to hear this week? Uh, the for the rest of the week on Radio for Humans tomorrow night, of course, we have uh, Zombie Voodoo Boutiques. Time for go to bed with Kenny Pick and Susan. Uh, they'll continue talking about their eBay store, and you know I, I'm kind of inclined to say that they're a sponsor of this program because. Uh, Kenny Kenny Pick did build this platform that he's generous enough to share, um, and of course um, they'll be continuing the road to Oz, more Jerry of the Circus, stuff like that. Uh, Friday start and that's starting at 7 p.m. Thursday. Immediately following that will be from the bunker with Jody Hamilton, and then on Friday night 7 p.m. Eastern we have it came from Cleveland. I have it on good authority. That they're going to be talking about vampires. So that gives me something to work on. Excuse me for my mythical moment. Saturday will be Paul's Memory Bank. Wherein he will be airing. Doing his yearly. You know his. Yearly airing of. Uh, Orson Welles' Mercury Radio Theater. Uh, a production of. The War of the Worlds. And then. Uh. Sunday will be the Radio for Humans Halloween Bonanza 2021. We do a Bonanza every year. Uh, this is a continuation of that, and I'll be I'll be taking to the air around 1 p.m. Eastern. I'm not, you know, um, and I will, I don't know when I'll be off, but I do know uh, that 5 5:30 is my max limit because I have my Dungeons and Dragons game. And I enjoy DMing. So, speaking of, uh, Critical Role's third campaign kicked off last Thursday. Uh, if you're interested but don't want to commit to listening to, you know, almost 200 episodes, well, between the first two campaigns, almost 300 episodes, this is a great time to get in at the ground floor. You know, you can listen to it. It's a whole new plot. You don't have to worry about anything uh, so do consider that anyway so we're going to get to our uh, oh did I finish uh, no I did not Monday 8.30am is the Tim Coromall show Tuesday at 8pm Eastern and I want to stress that anytime I mention a, re a time on this program it is especially in relation to to an another program I am talking about Eastern um, Eastern is the radio standard it's the standard we go you know like we consider ourselves to be uh, headquartered in the Eastern time zone so just keep in mind that usually when I mention times on this program it is um, it is <laughs> it is Eastern time zone. If you have any questions, you can feel free to ask. But again, nine times out of ten, Eastern time. Uh, and then Wednesday at eight thirty a.m., we have the Tim Cromwell show again. So, um, and of course, 
uh, due to the uh, Radio for Humans Halloween Bonanza 2021. There will be no um, Second Chance Sunday this week. Uh, we may program it to run at night instead of during the day, but uh, that's just going to depend. Uh, so again, just to stress that um, there will be no Second Chance Sunday uh, this this in its usual time slot. If we run it, it'll be later in the day, uh, after Paul's memory bank. Yeah, I've been up since seven this morning, so I'm I'm a little I'm starting to nod off. Uh, anyway, we are going to uh, get ready to wrap up our show with our Pod People segment, and this week we've got uh, a returning talent. Uh, the Pod People segment, uh, the Pod People choice for this week, is Nocturnal Transmissions, which stars uh, Kristen Holland, who you might. Remember, you'll recognize his voice. He's uh, he plays Doctor Doctor Malcolm Ryder, parapsychologist, on um, a voice from darkness. He's he's brilliant at these scary stories. And the nice thing is is that um, nocturnal transmissions combine. First of all, what you need to know is nocturnal transmissions uh, has a new post every two weeks, every fortnight. Um, but every third show is Patreon exclusive. And I actually, I'm okay with that model. You're releasing the bulk of your material free to download. And, but you're also giving the, the Patreon people, um, something unique. And, and, uh, and keeping with my pledge, I will not share anything that, it, you know, from a Patreon exclusive, um, episode from from any uh, anything you're going to hear in this program just because um it could be considered a jerk move you know so again anything you hear on the pod people segment is going to be something you can go and download right away so and of course you'll be able to find all the links in our show notes i realized that i did not do a show post for last week we will take care of that later to later uh, probably tomorrow because i am most likely going to bed shortly after this but um yeah so i i enjoy the nice thing about um nocturnal transmissions is that it's a great mix of um modern short fiction and class you know like gothic you know and classic short fiction um he also does horror he does science fiction he's done dark fantasy i mean most everything he shows has a horror you know he reads and he does the readings himself guys uh has a horror bent but he's done fantasy he's done sci-fi he's done uh, you know steampunk or well variation or you know um he's done um all sorts of stuff um and so you're you're getting a really great variety listening to the show um, he's done, he done, he's a huge fan, I believe, of Lovecraft because he's done uh, readings of several Lovecraft stories, and that's why I picked for tonight's uh, preview. Unfortunately, he doesn't have a trailer for his series, so I just did an extra big clip from his from his from one of his episodes. But again, the nice thing about this show is if you commit, to, you know, if you listen, if you're in, if you commit to it for the long haul, 
you are going to get a huge variety of stories. Again, science fiction, dark fantasy, all of them with a horror bent because that's the point of the show. But again, um, huge swath of, you know, huge variety of... Of um, stories and genres. So there is that. Um, so there you have it. We're going to do... Uh, so our pod people clip is... I believe this is the third episode of Nocturnal Transmissions. And it's his reading of... Oh, I just realized we forgot to do a... Uh, a... Um, Ripley's uh, bumper. So we'll do that on the back end. But anyway, this is uh, Nocturnal Transmission Episode 4, uh, The Call of Cthulhu Parts 1 and 2. Of course, we're not playing the whole thing. I'm just saying that that's, you know... Anyway, so here we go. Hello, gentle listener. And welcome to Nocturnal Transmissions, short stories and mutterings from the wrong side of midnight. The fortnightly podcast that brings you spirited renditions of dark tales, both old and new, performed by voice artist Kristen Holland. This episode, we bring you part one of our two-part production of H.P. Lovecraft's immortal tale of cosmic existential dread, The Call of Cthulhu. However, before we begin, I wish to thank you, our kind supporters, for taking an interest in our humble podcast. Every one of you who subscribes and... Even better, leaves us a five-star review, helps us enormously in our mission to worm our way into the hearts and minds of the bewildered denizens of this, our tiny, blue, doomed planet. Speaking of which, without further ado, Nocturnal Transmissions is proud to present H.P. Lovecraft's the Call of Cthulhu. The Call of Cthulhu by H.P. Lovecraft Performed by Kristen Holland of such great powers or beings there may be conceivably a survivor. A survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested, perhaps in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity. Forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, Mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. Algernon Blackwood. One. The Horror in Clay. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, 
and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But some day, the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Theosophists have guessed at the awesome grandeur of the cosmic cycle wherein our world and human race form transient incidents. They have hinted at strange survivals in terms which would freeze the blood if not masked by a bland optimism. But it is not from them that there came the single glimpse of forbidden eons which chills me when I think of it and maddens me when I dream of it. That glimpse, like all dread glimpses of truth, flashed out from an accidental piecing together of separated things. In this case, an old newspaper item and the notes of a dead professor. So there you have it. And and that's the opening to Call of Cthulhu. Um, some people disagree with the pronunciation. I know Kenny says Cthulhu. I, most people say Cthulhu, but that's okay. Um, but again, that's uh, Nocturnal Transmissions, epi- uh, an excerpt from episode four, wherein Kristen Holland uh, reads Call of Cthulhu. And, and you know, what I really like is and I'm going to admit that a lot of my, you know, some of the things, the way I say some things uh, on this program have been informed by him. And I can tell you that if I ever did like a full on horror host persona, um, it would probably largely be inspired by him um, just because he's so good at it. And the thing is that there's the version of him that's introducing and whatever the opposite of introduce, you know, talk, talking in and, you know, talking up and talking down um, the horror host and then there's the version of him that's re- giving such great reads to these stories so um, there you have it again that's nocturnaltransmissions.com.au that will be in our show notes and just a reminder that all incidental music heard on this program is provided by tabletopaudio.com tabletopaudio.com Music for where you work, play, or podcast. And of course, by read, we mean, or play, we mean play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Tabletop Audio. Um, I, <laughs> you're, doing the, you're doing the Lord's work. I'll give you that much for free. Anyway, we're going to end the show tonight. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Podcast will go up hopefully soon. And, uh, yeah. Let's get, uh, let's get ready to uh, play us out. Again, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for for making this first season air bunny ears air quotes great. 
Uh, don't forget the Radio for Humans Halloween Spooktacular 2021 this Sunday. Um, more details will come as decisions are made. But the one thing you need to know is I will be I will be on the air for a, a, a good portion of the afternoon. So. That's all, you know, that's the most important part. Uh, podcasts will go up, uh, may, if not tonight, definitely by tomorrow. I'm, I'm finishing up my vacation. And uh, like I said, uh, I will be making an announcement about how this program will be going forward on Sunday. Spoiler alert! It's going forward. You know, we're sticking, we might make some adjustments, but um, we're going to keep going. And... Uh, so, all right, everyone, have a great week. Have a great rest. Have a great. Have a great rest. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, this is yours cruelly wishing you unpleasant dreams. The price of cotton was reported daily to the grave of Al McGee of Glenville, Alabama, out of respect for a dying wish, believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the greatest lover of them all. Hari Hara II, king of Vijayanagar, India, in 1398, had 12,000 wives, but they were not enough. The king fell in love with a girl from a neighboring kingdom merely because he heard she was beautiful. To force her into marriage, he began a war against her country. But his neighbor, Pharaoh Shah Tughlaq, proved far more powerful. And the marrying king lost his kingdom, his fortune, his 12,000 wives, and his life. Believe it or not. (laughs) 